Welcome to the Carbon Sense podcast from Elsoy Advisor, where we do our best to uncomplicate the carbon landscape. I'm your host, Abigail Peterson, Director of Agronomy at the Illinois Soybean Association. And today we are discussing questions to ask and what to look for when evaluating carbon programs. With us today is Sarah Sellers, Graduate Research Assistant at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Sarah, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Abigail. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, this is a topic I love to to talk about. So I'm really excited to be here today. Yeah, and I'm sure getting a lot of questions. So Sarah is a third year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign studying agricultural and applied economics. Her advisor is Dr. Gary Schnicki, and her research interests include farm management, conservation practice adoption, and agricultural finance. Sarah holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Agricultural and Consumer Economics from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and a Master of Science degree in Agricultural Economics from Purdue University. Her interest in agricultural economics began when growing up on a family farm outside of Winchester, Illinois, where her family raises corn, soybeans, cattle, and hogs. So today we're going to talk about what growers need to be thinking about and aware of when they are evaluating carbon programs, specifically what questions they should ask and what to look for. So to start off, Sarah, what are the different ways to even participate in the carbon market space currently? So typically what we see farmers using is a a type of data manager. So the data manager kind of acts as a a middleman between the, the buyer of the agricultural carbon credits and and the farmer. So the thing with agriculture is um, the the carbon credits generated from a lot of the practices such as switching to reduced till or no-till or using cover crops, um, it can be relatively small. So what that data manager does is they take all these small uh, pieces and they they put them all together from all of the farmers. They they aggregate uh, kind of all of the sequestration. Uh, so that's kind of one, of one of the reasons why these data managers exist is to kind of um, put all these small pieces of, of carbon sequestration together and, and sell it. Um, so kind of like the steps required, the programs offered, whether the, the data manager offers agronomic assistance, the, the registries or the the verification the data manager uses, these all really vary based on uh, who you choose and kind of what you decide. So, um, but today there's currently around uh, somewhere around 11 voluntary carbon programs that a farmer could choose from. There may be a few more out there, a few few less, but that's just kind of approximation. Uh, That's from a document put together by Iowa State University, kind of comparing these 11 private voluntary carbon programs. Um, and one thing I will mention is it's amazing how much uh, everything's changed. I mean, we, we started working on this project last year. Uh, my, my advisor, Dr. Gary Schnitke, and I and some other researchers, we, we put together this article, what questions should farmers ask about selling carbon credits last, last spring? And it's amazing how much has changed since that time. So. Um, expecting this kind of market and these ideas to keep evolving even more this year. Yeah, it's great to have your guys' eyes on it because it does change so fast. And then you'll see, you know, another news release or another announcement um, that kind of confuses things. So it's it's nice to have um, 
University of Illinois and other um, land grant colleges uh, that are working together to understand this for farmers and get some of those questions answered um, unbiasedly and and make a little bit of sense out of it. Um, so that's awesome. And so jumping into the next big question of what what I would want to know um, if I was getting into the carbon space is how much will I be paid and how long does it usually take to get these payments? Absolutely. I think this is probably the number one question a lot of a lot of people are asking. And when when this all kind of first started last year, I think things were a little less clear, you know. Um, what does a farmer have to pay? Do they need to pay for the soil testing? Do they need to pay fees? Do they need to pay uh, withholding for carbon losses? But now uh, some of that's kind of been smoothed out, I think, and um, it's a little more straightforward. So uh, what we see is some companies are paying per practice uh, and some companies are paying per acre or, or per credit generated. So uh, for example, Corteva is guaranteeing a minimum of $15 per credit and they're projecting that to increase up to $30 per credit. Uh, Indigo, they were at $10 per credit in 2020. That was their guaranteed minimum. Um, and now they're guaranteeing a minimum of $15 and they're also projecting that to go up to $30 per credit. Uh, we can kind of compare that to Bayer. They're paying uh, based on practice adoption. So they'll pay you $3 per acre for adopting uh, reduced tillage, and they'll pay you $6 per acre for adopting cover crops. Uh, there's also another example would be Truterra. It was something that I found interesting is when they kind of started out there paying farmers per credit, uh, but now they're giving farmers the option to choose. So you can decide whether you want to be paid per in a per practice per acre program or a per credit program. Uh, so they're pay, they paid $10 per credit in 2021. They're paying uh, $20 per credit in 2022. Or if you want to do the, the per acre, they'll pay you $2 per acre. Um, but thinking about getting the payment and the length of time, that's really going to vary from company to company along with the payment structure too. So how much are they going to pay you up front? If they are, how much, um, you know, are, are they going to take measurements before and after and then, then base your payment kind of on those measurements? Uh, that, that really varies. So it's important to get a clear, clear answer on that before making a decision. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, a lot of moving parts there. And so when you talk about the credits, um, what is a carbon credit actually worth? That's a good question. Um, so one thing I will mention is this is all relatively new and, and there's no uh, really true price discovery in this market. So um, for example, one thing we've studied a lot is Alberta, Canada. They have a um, agricultural carbon market, and they, they've had that for uh, since around 2008, I believe. So they've kind of uh, been through some of this, but th their system's a little bit different because they have a cap and trade policy in place there. So uh, this creates uh, a, a demand and a, a market to kind of trade these credits. Um, here, we don't have a, a true marketplace where the, where the credits are being traded. So uh, it's kind of hard to put a price on things because there's not this price discovery process happening. So I attended a, a sustainable agricultural conference last year where, where all these companies uh, who, who have these agricultural carbon market programs, a lot of them were there, they were answering questions, uh, giving presentations, and, and somebody asked them, 
uh, how, how did you set the price for your carbon credits? And, and their answer was, well, we kind of just looked at what everyone else was doing and we, we set our price based on that. So what's kind of driving up the, the price right now is, is the competition between companies uh, since we don't have kind of that, that price discovery process going on. Uh, but one statistic uh, I saw, there's a paper from Iowa State that kind of looks through the different processes of how each company uh, buys and sells the credits. Uh, th that document suggested that one company is getting approximately 25% of the value of the credit, and the farmer is getting 75% of the value for, of what that company is selling that for. Uh, what they're selling that for, I don't know, but let's just say the carbon credit is $20. Uh, then the company would be getting around 27 if, if that split is, is what they're getting. Gotcha. Yeah, because that was going to be the next question of, you know, how does how does the carbon aggregator even benefit from selling your credit? So there is a, a trade off there with, um, you know, depending, I'm sure, with each company, um, how that's determined, but something to be on watch for. I know you don't have a crystal ball and I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, but do you, you know, with all your insights and research, do you see a type of standard for them to be all following a price? Um, per credit uh, number or within that market space to develop? Do you see that um, coming anytime soon? I think that's a really good question. And I think uh, part of that is going to be driven by if the government gets involved. So if the government steps in and, and regulates this market more, then definitely uh, we could see some, some verification registry standards put into place. Um, and also this will come from the demand side too. So the, the people who are buying the credits, um, these are maybe companies who want to reach net zero emissions. Maybe they promise their shareholders that to reach net zero emissions by a, a certain year, they need a way to get there. Uh, so maybe they're buying agricultural carbon credits as a way to do this. So if they demand uh, more rigorously registered credits or verified credits, uh, because again, there's some variation out there. Um, some companies are, are going through a really strict uh, verification process of, of carbon offsets with a third party verifier. Other companies kind of have their own way of, of verifying and modeling things. And these are more generally called carbon credits. So there's been some discussion about, okay, uh, does a company want a carbon, true carbon offset with all this verification or does a carbon credit, will that, will that still be the same? Uh, or, you know, is there price, there should be a price difference between these two or how is all of that going to work? So I think some of that could be worked out uh, from the demand side too and, and what these companies are wanting. And some of these companies have to reduce specifically their, their scope three emissions. So the, their scope one emissions are, are what they emit directly. And if we're thinking about scope three, that's the emissions um, generated by the, the products they use. So if they're using corn to in one of their products, then the scope three emissions are all the emissions generated from producing that corn, uh, the fertilizer, the fuel, all of that. So if a company needs to reduce specifically along these scope three emissions, um, that, then that's gonna create demand specifically for agricultural carbon credits. Yeah, definitely. No, that's interesting. And so coming into then, you know, how does the company benefit? Obviously, you know, if they're looking to create these types of offsets and, and sequester carbon, it requires certain practices. And those farmers putting in those practices, it, 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 
cost them money um, and experience level and, and getting into that system change. Um, and you, as well as Gary Schnicki, have done a lot of the economics behind some of those practice changes just in general without um, looking at the carbon space, but just, you know, what adapting no-till looks like and what does adapting cover crops look like. So do you see at right now, you know, from the potential profit, like farmer, I'm getting into a carbon market and, you know, into my enterprise, am I ever going to see a profit from selling my carbon? Will I be able to start to recoup some of the expensive expenses of implementing these conservation practices? Absolutely. That's a great question. And I think definitely a lot of farmers are thinking about that. Uh, what, what we found uh, based on some, some data we found from the USDA when we wrote this initial article about what questions should farmers ask about selling carbon credits is the carbon credit price wasn't yet high enough for uh, to kind of cover these costs of adoption. So the farmers was incurring some of that adoption cost. And also when we put together that analysis that, that wasn't factoring in some of these additional costs too, um, because a lot of these programs, they require a, a software subscription um, or things like that, which can, can be additional costs for the farmer if, if they don't already have some of those things. So uh, for farmers, who are, are looking to do this just purely from uh, break even? I, I don't. I don't think it's there yet. Uh, we'll have to see what happens with the price of carbon credits. Uh, but if a farmer is maybe thinking about adopting a conservation practice anyway, maybe they're thinking about adopting cover crops anyway, then maybe uh, enrolling in this program could just be kind of a, an added bonus for them. Or maybe they already use the software and they already have their data in the software subscription. Then maybe the kind of some of those adoption costs aren't as high for some people. Um, another another thing to mention is some programs will allow you to stack with government payments. So uh, stacking with uh, something like an equip payment that could help you to reach uh, break even or above for adopting some of these practices. So in the space of, of trying to understand whether you can stack credits um, or, you know, the different ways of how these will progress in the market space is one thing that you can do um, start to, you know, store your credits, bank them for later. If you've done past practices, will those be at all accounted? Um, what are some of the things in that space that can be evaluated? So I think being able to store and sell later is something that's going to be really important um, so some programs will, will let you do that, uh, some programs won't, so it kind of depends on what you choose. Um, and nobody knows what's going to happen in the future with these programs. Uh, things could take off, the price could increase, or, uh, you know, things might not exactly work out, or maybe other options come up for farmers too, and they, you know, they have a whole different market they can, they can look at for ecosystem payments. Uh, but being able, when I, I went to a, a sustainable agriculture conference uh, last year, like I mentioned, and the, the companies there, they, they were really gave the impression that they had some expectation that the price of the carbon credits was going to go up. Uh, they had some, done some analysis suggesting that the demand was greater than the supply right now of these agricultural carbon credits. And if you go on a company websites, you can, you can kind of see this too. Uh, Corteva has a, a figure on their website projecting uh, carbon credit prices into, uh, I think it's 
20, 30, I, I can't remember the exact year, but they, they show that going up. So there's some expectation from these companies that, that they think the price is going to go up. Again, I have no idea if that's going to happen. I don't want to try to make any guesses. Uh, the opposite could likely happen as well. Uh, but if that does happen, um, farmers want to be able to kind of capture on, on some of that market upside potential. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's kind of one of the, the hard parts now is, you know, you can look into doing a couple of acres in this, but wanting to make sure that you're capturing the best opportunity. And is that starting now? Is that waiting? Is it, um, where is this going? And it's still a lot unknown, but it's, it's good to hear that there's a positive outlook. And we know essentially that um, the need will be there for at least in the coming um, years. So um, that's good to know. Um, and so in the scope of, of, you know, looking into the credits and, and needing to um, apply for those credits, it, it takes a lot of data. Um, and, and so when you're working with these companies and, and they're using your data, who exactly owns the data and are they going to be sharing that? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, we don't really have a clear answer on that right now. Um, a lot of these companies, they have their own software programs where you're putting in information, or maybe you're already using the software program anyway, and your information's already all in there. So I think it just depends on, on the software program and, and what, what they're doing with all this information they're collecting. I mean, I think this has been a huge question in agriculture over the last few years about farmer data and, and how should companies be using farmer data? Should, should they be using the data? Should they be paying for using this data? So uh, this is just kind of another piece in this bigger overall argument about uh, farmers' data and privacy and, and, and rights to their own data and um, what they should receive for sharing their data. Uh, another thing to mention is, I think I mentioned this before, but there is a cost for a lot of these software programs too. And that can be, uh, I've heard of one, I think it's $1,000 a year maybe. So that is that is significant for farmers. Wow, yeah. And so, well, and that's very interesting. And and, and so in that space, you know, either if, if there's a cost to it or um, what I could be doing now to help um, start collecting and managing my data, is there any tips that you'd um, recommend for getting prepared? I think uh, getting a clear answer from the company, you know, I think that should be a, a big question. A lot of farmers ask is, is about their, their data because the data they have, the farmers providing is very valuable, especially when aggregated with uh, the data of other farmers. I mean, uh, this is huge. And this whole data revolution in agriculture, this is, this is huge. And, and sometimes I worry that, uh, maybe some of that gets forgotten, the value that, that is being provided through this data to the companies. Yeah, and keeping that farmer at the forefront of being able to, to be in control um, and making sure that they, you know, it's interesting when you hear about the company aspect of, you know, signing up into these contracts, being able to, if you wanted to switch um, or enroll into a new program, um, so why is looking into the contract length important? And is there any fine print to really red flag that that would pop up or something specific to look out for? I think uh, one major concern with the, the contract length is the whole issue of land ownership. So if you're on 
rented land, you end up having to leave the contract, then what happens to you? Are you penalized? Uh, do you have to pay a penalty? Does the contract stay with the land? And the person who, who starts renting or who buys the land have to continue the, the contract? I mean, I think that's a, that's a big question, especially for people who are renting when, when kind of locking into these long-term things. What we're seeing from the companies is a lot of variation in, in how they handle things. So some of these companies are building their own um, buffer pools. So they're buying more carbon credits than they're selling and they're, they're kind of managing that risk on their own. And they kind of have this expectation that some of these farmers are going to drop out of the program and, and that's going to be okay. Others, you may need to uh, pay up, pay a, pay a penalty or, or settle up in some way. Um, I think it really just depends. Also, uh, there's been a lot of concern about, because some of these contracts are 10 or more years, so uh, a lot can change in that time. So what if I need to do something to my land? What if I need to till? I mean, there's a lot of variability in what, what can happen. So I think uh, looking kind of into these terms and conditions and, and what you can and can't do and what, what constitutes as violating the contract. And if you do violate the contract, then, then what happens to you? These are all uh, things that are important to kind of look out for. That was a great sum up of, you know, a great summary of what we should be looking into these contracts. I know things can be confusing. And essentially, Sarah, you know, as you mentioned, the space is ever changing. Um, you're getting a lot of different research on your end that you're being able to use to help farmers to make these decisions. Um, what resources should farmers really be um, keeping an eye on to help them navigate this space in a way that, you know, it, it, it changes a lot. So what's the best way for them to keep updated um, the best they can? Of course, uh, first I'll suggest Daily. Uh, we have a few articles covering this topic. As I mentioned, our first article, which was last year, what questions should farmers ask about selling carbon credits? We also have an article called uh, Growing Climate Solutions Act, Impact on Farmers. So I, I didn't really touch on the policy side uh, today, but the policy side is a big piece of this and that the Growing Climate Solutions Act is, is part of that policy side and it, it hasn't passed yet. I mean, uh, so there's an article about that. Uh, we recently put out an article about um, agricultural carbon markets in Alberta, Canada. So we kind of looked at the market there and what, what happened there and what's going on there now. Um, to kind of see if there's any information we can gain from, from studying what they've done. Uh, we have some, some YouTube videos on the Farm Doc uh, YouTube channel. We have a couple, we have a webinar on this topic, so uh, some great resources and, and hopefully more to come. Uh, there's also some great resources from the Illinois Sustainable Ag Partnership website. Um, they have some nice documents kind of comparing agricultural carbon market programs and kind of thinking specifically about Illinois as well. Um, Iowa State University has a lot of great resources. Uh, they have a document, how to grow and sell carbon credits in US agriculture um, that kind of goes through some of the questions that we brought up in our, our Farm Dark Daily article and, and tries to answer them and, and compare programs. Um, they have another document that kind of goes through the, the process of, of how the credits are sold and where they go to and, and kind of what happens within each of these companies. And then the American Soybean Association website also has some um, resources as well, kind of comparing different agricultural carbon market programs. So 
these are just a few resources we've been sharing with farmers and um, trying to get the word out to help them get as much information as possible. Also watching uh, current ag news and policy news to try to keep up with the latest changes to any of these programs or latest uh, policy changes. I think that's a big part of this too. Well, that's great. Yeah, hopefully um, we can get more information um, to farmers and in a way that's easily digestible and um, getting more examples out there. You know, as we go through this next year, it feels like a lot have been phasing out of their pilot stages and getting more into um, a, a routine program. And so just getting more information from those and um, being able to answer some questions of actual experiences. Um, so yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to keep up with and, and to track and see how this all evolves. Um, so, and just finish you know, there's so many more things that we could have touched based on. We'll probably have you do a lot more for, for our soybean farmers um, to, to get you in front of crowds to really um, share what you've learned as this year goes on. Um, any final like tips for farmers that you just want to uh, mention? Um, anything that um, hopefully you're, maybe you're excited for in this new year? Something I'm really excited for is the, the USDA investment um, they're investing $1 billion in um, like climate smart agriculture and these programs, trying to figure out how to kind of measure all this stuff. And I, I think this is really exciting because agricultural carbon markets are just one uh, piece that's emerged from this whole uh, bigger picture of agriculture and how it fits into uh, sustainability and how we can give farmers credit for the work they've been doing for a long time that, that has benefits for, for, the, for the entire society. Um, so I'm really optimistic because this is all just emerging. And with this new investment, I mean, uh, there was a lot of applications. And I, I really think competition and, and investment and funding, they drive innovation uh, and they drive research and they drive change. So I really think even new options could emerge for farmers. Maybe agricultural carbon markets is just one small piece of, of what can emerge from all of this. So I'm really excited and optimistic about uh, what could happen in the future and what, what new opportunities could arise for, for farmers. And uh, I just want to mention that uh, it's, it's really an honor to work on this project and, and work on this topic. I really love working with farmers. I love to do work that is hopefully beneficial for farmers. You know, I'm from Illinois, from a farm, and, and it's really been fun working with uh, farmers, talking with farmers, and trying to get some of this information out there. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. We're really lucky to have someone like you in the state of Illinois um, to be able to, to do this for us and, and, and have your expertise and, and, um, and answer our questions even today. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me. So I'd like to once again thank our guest today, Sarah Sellers, PhD student at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. If you're interested in learning more about the science behind carbon and other soybean management resources, visit www.lsoyadvisor.com. That's ilsoyadvisor.com to learn more. This has been the Carbon Sense Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any of the important carbon conversations to come. Thank you.